My friends, when I read the Catechism this evening, as we have it given to us about the Holy Catholic Church, I can't help but think how all the study that we've done in the book of Acts is right there before us in that Catechism. The Catechism is really just uh, taking the truths that were represented for us and, and illustrated for us on the pages of Acts as we've been considering it. And so the first part of the sermon, I'd just like to go clause by clause through this Lord's Day, or through this question and answer here, and show you some of these things. The first clause that is given us is that the Son of God is the one who does this. The Son of God is the one who does this. And remember that when we were reading, when we were in the book of Acts, it was the Son of God who poured out the Spirit upon his people. We saw that in Acts 2 and verse 32, where Peter, in his sermon on the day of Pentecost, says, This Jesus God raised up again, to which we are all witnesses. Therefore, having been exalted to the right hand of God, and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he that is Jesus, has poured forth this which you both see and hear. So it's the Son of God who does these things. Who actually, the, the verbs for that is, I believe that the Son of God, and then you've got to drop down a ways, gathers, protects, and preserves are the three verbs that the Heidelberg Catechism gives us. I believe that the Son of God gathers, protects, and preserves. But backing up, the next clause that we're given here is through his Spirit, and word, through his spirit and word. Now, both of these things are necessary. Through his spirit and word. In the first place, the word is preached. Right? The word comes to the people who hear it. But it has no effect on its own. No one would believe the gospel if it was only word. The best preacher can preach all day long. That does not change anyone's heart. Without the Spirit, the Word remains ineffectual. But now the beauty of what God does, of what Christ does in gathering, protecting, and preserving His church is that He received the promise of the Spirit from the Father and He pours that Spirit out upon His people and He continues to send the Spirit so that the Word goes forth and the Spirit causes it to sink into the hearts of men and people believe it and they are saved. Word and Spirit. Uh, we saw that especially when in, in Antioch, in Acts 11 and verse 26, where we have, uh, this is, remember when um, Barnabas went to Tarsus to find Paul, and he brought Paul back to Antioch because he knew that the new Christians in Antioch needed teaching. They needed to be taught. So that's the word. But now there must be word and spirit. And that's the beauty of what God, God does in his church. That when both of those are together, then you have salvation. You have a community. You have a gathering, a defending, a protecting. By the way, you can also have the spirit without the word. Although now I would put spirit not with a capital letter S. Because sometimes you have churches that claim to have a great deal of the spirit but I don't see so much of the word. Many times sincere Christians, too, can seek to have an experience of the spirit, but apart from the word. And so spirit and word, they always belong together, congregation. And it's so critical that they always come together. 
If we have word but no spirit, we have no church. We have no conversion. We have no, we have no regeneration taking place. But if we have spirit and no word, well, then too we have a problem, right? Then there's not that teaching. And then churches tend to uh, devolve into all kinds of hysterical things that are become actually not so spirit-centered at all. They become very man-made. And you begin to wonder what kind of spirit they really have in such a church. And I think we've seen examples of that. Spirit and word. Next is out of the entire human race. Well, we've certainly seen that in the book of Acts. What a difficult time the apostles had to come to this realization that God doesn't just gather his people out of the Jewish race. But out of the whole human race, God gathers his people, Jew and Gentile alike. And here I had this uh, Acts 10 and verse 15. Of course, this is when Peter is in the house of Cornelius. Remember what God said to him. What God has cleansed, no longer consider unholy. Right? That was God's revelation to Peter. Don't you call unholy what I have cleansed from the whole human race, from the beginning of the world to its end. That will be the subject of the sermon this evening. So I'm going to skip that one for now. I'll be returning to it. Gathering, protecting, and preserving. Now, these are, this is what the Son of God does. And certainly we've seen that all along the way in the book of Acts. For himself. For himself. That the, the people that are being saved, this church that is being gathered, is especially a gift that the Father has given to his Son. Now, I put there Acts 2.34. Uh, that's incorrect. It should be John 6. John 6 and verse 37. This isn't in the book of Acts so much, uh, but certainly it underlies much of what we've seen in Acts, where the Father, where Jesus is saying, all that the Father gives me will come to me, and the one who comes to me I will certainly not cast out. For I have not, for I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. So the church is for Christ, right? Jesus gathers, protects, and preserves for himself a community. The next one is a community. And certainly we've seen that, haven't we, in the book of Acts, that they were so close, they had so much love for each other, that they even uh, shared their wealth to such an extent that not one of them lacked. And they freely gave of what they had and of what God had given them for the for the flourishing of the community. Chosen for eternal life. Now, to the best of my knowledge, this is the one reference we have in the Heidelberg Catechism to the, to the doctrine of election. But this, too, is in the book of Acts. Now, we haven't come there yet, but in Acts 13 and verse 48, we find a very clear reference to God's electing work. And in Acts 13 and verse 48, we read... When the Gentiles heard this, they began rejoicing and glorifying the word of the Lord, and as many as had been appointed to eternal life believed. Well, there's the doctrine of election, isn't it? That of all the preaching that went forth, those who were elect by God from eternity came to faith, believed in Christ, and were saved. And so our catechism teaches us, chosen for eternal life. Next we have an united in true faith. United in true faith. And again, I, I couldn't find just a single verse because really we've seen that on every page of Acts that this community was united around the truth of the gospel. 
that there was unity there. And then the last sentence is given us, and of this community, I am and always will be a living member. And there you see a distinction made between living members. There are also dead members. There are people within the church who are not living members. They are in the church, but they are not of the church. Here you can think about Ananias, Sapphira, Simon the magician, and others who were able to deceive the apostles, but they were not able to deceive the Holy Spirit. So, I trust then that I've made clear to you how the book of Acts, just every phrase of this beautiful answer that is given us in our catechism is, is found in living color in the life of real people in the book of Acts. It's so difficult, congregation, to understand and appreciate the doctrine of the church if you don't have a thorough understanding of the book of Acts. Because the book of Acts is, again, the doctrine of the church in the lives of real people. You see it in a real community of people. You see it enfleshed. May I put it that way? So that's the book of Acts and what it does for our understanding of the church. But then you'll notice that I did skip one. And that is that one, the, it's the uh, fourth one there, from the beginning of the world to its end. Now that brings me to the first point of my sermon this evening. And I do hope, my friends, that you'll forgive me uh, this evening. This evening's sermon is going to be somewhat, uh, I'll use this word, polemical. In other words, a bit controversial. It's okay to preach a sermon like that every now and again, isn't it? Where we, we descend into a controversy, a difference of opinion amongst Christians. And again, I, I think that as long as we do this in a loving spirit, in a spirit that God has spoken to others, as well as to us, uh, but still using the word of God to find our way through this. I want to look at this question then, when did the church of Christ begin? And this is somewhat of a controversial question in the churches. Now, our catechism says very clearly, from the beginning of the world to its end. From the beginning of the world to its end. That means Adam, Eve, Abel, and right on down through the line of Seth, not the line of Cain, God had his people. And we say in these churches, uh, in our churches, I mean, that God had his church. Even from the beginning of the world, from Abraham to Isaac to Jacob, Joseph, right on through all the people of Israel, the prophets, God had his people. And when Christ came, people came into the kingdom of God. In the book of Acts, we've rejoiced to see Gentiles coming in. On the day of Pentecost, we saw this new covenant being initiated by God, the church being baptized in the Spirit. And yet you know that there's a great number of churches that deny this. Now, one of these churches is very close to us. This is uh, uh, Pastor Dave Thompson that I'm quoting here from the Texas Corners Bible Church, well known, I think, to, to many of us. And this is a church that would very much vigorously disagree with this statement that the church was from the beginning of the world to its end. And I put this comment uh, on, this is from one of the sermons that uh, Brother Thompson had preached 
And he writes, or actually in this particular case he was speaking, there are some who believe that the church existed in the Old Testament. Now that would be us. That's, that's what Reformed people believe. And I want to tell you, there is absolutely no biblical support for that. None. You cannot find the church in the Old Testament. And that's where people make some major mistakes with the Bible. Now, Brother Thompson is a very engaging speaker and a, and a wonderful teacher. He's very clear, easy to understand. That made it easy for me to find this quote. Uh, so, but this is the, the statement that he makes. And so I think it behooves us then to try to understand this. When did the church begin? Now, as we try to understand uh, the thinking of our brothers and sisters who differ with us on this question, it's important to understand that churches like this church that I just mentioned are what we call dispensational. Dispensational. And by that, I mean that they take the record of biblical history and they divide it into dispensations. In other words, they divide it into different time periods. And unique to each of these time periods is a specific test that God gives to each of these periods. And some of this makes, makes good sense, doesn't it? God certainly gave a test to Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden. Afterwards, God gave a test to the Noahic world, right? The world during the time of Noah. They had a test with the ark. And so on, in the, in the time period of Abraham, in the time period of Israel, which they call the dispensation of law, and then the dispensation of the new covenant, or the dispensation of the church age, as they call it, from Acts 2 and on. So they break up these, these, these uh, they break up biblical history into these dispensations. Now we do that too. We also see different dispensations in biblical history. The difference is this. We see the dispensations in biblical history as growing like a tree. Think of it like an organism. It starts as an acorn, right? You can think of Adam and Eve in the garden. And it grows. And the kingdom of God slowly grows. It becomes a sapling, right? It becomes a a six-foot-high tree. Then it grows into a massive, beautiful, you know, a 30-foot-high tree with its branches spreading, right? But the dispensations are all not unique and distinct from each other. So that in a, in a dispensational, dispensationalist uh, mindset, these, dis, these dispensations are all, they begin, they end, and then they're done. And then a completely new one begins. A new dispensation begins. And it goes on, there's this test, the people of God almost, well, they always fail, right? And that's what the dispensationalists teach. And then a new one begins. So, for instance, if we say that uh, the, the, during the time of Noah, there was this dispensation when God gave the people of that time a test to, to uh, repent of their sins by the preaching of Noah and to get into the ark, but they failed, that dispensation comes to an end. Now God begins again. So everything that's been done in the past is over, in the past, now God begins a new a whole new program with the people of Abraham. He calls Abraham out of the Ur of Chaldees. He gives him a covenant. He gives him this test, right? And now Abraham is to walk in accordance with that test. And it goes on until it ends. And that's a failure too. And then begins the dispensation of Israel. Everything that has gone preceding is, is done. A completely new program now is set up to the nation of Israel. Now, we've been trained from the very youngest days, right, that there's the covenant of grace. In fact, the covenant of grace doesn't even begin at the beginning of the world. It goes all the way back into eternity past. And that now this, this kingdom of God is growing and God is, is, is adding to it. He, he's guiding it. 
He's orchestrating the events of history such that this, this acorn, as it were, grows and develops until it becomes the full-grown tree. So you have a very different way of understanding the history of the Bible. And that's why the dispensationalist would say, as our brother has said already, that when the church began, it began in Acts chapter 2 on the day of Pentecost. And this was the beginning of a completely new dispensation. The old dispensation of the law was done with and was never to be heard from again. And God began a completely new program, a completely new setup, you might say, in Acts chapter 2. And he baptized his people with the Spirit of God. They were brought together in one body, Jew and Gentile. And this is an entirely new thing. In fact, uh, you will hear even in the, in the sermon that I listened to from my brother on this particular text, that basically everything prior to Acts chapter 2 is all about Israel. It's, it's a little disconcerting sometimes to hear because, and again, I don't want to put words in their mouth, but you really get the impression that basically from about Genesis 12, right, when God first called Abraham up to Acts 2, that's really just kind of history for us. It's just God's dealings, a record of God's dealings with the nation of Israel. And it doesn't really pertain to us. God made promises to Abraham. God made promises by way of the prophets. And that's all interesting for us to read, but it has nothing to do with us. And when God made promises to the nation of Israel, those promises will be literally fulfilled to the nation of Israel. And we can stand by and watch and worship God for keeping his promise to the nation of Israel, but it, it doesn't, there's no blessing in that for us. That's a completely separate program. And of course, the number one thing that all the dispensationalists will agree on is you must never say that the church has replaced Israel, that God made promises to Israel in the Old Testament, and now the people of God, which was limited to the nation of Israel in the Old Testament, now the people of God in the New Testament is Jew and Gentile together, and that the promises God made to Israel are now taken over or will be fulfilled in the church of God. Never will they ever. That is not negotiable. If they ever give that up, they give up their dispensationalism. They believe that if a promise is made to Israel, it is fulfilled to Israel. And the church is a whole separate entity. And you might say it's almost like there's a two-track program. You have the church and you have Israel. God has a plan for Israel and God has a plan for the church. And the two never do meet. This is the question then, my friends, about, about uh, the church and Israel. And that's why I can say with certainty that the, our brothers... Uh, let me say this as well, because I don't want to be misunderstood here. The, the dispensationalists have a very high regard for the Bible. They handle the word of God with great care and with great respect. And even as I'm now going to criticize them for, I think, their mistaken understanding of the Bible, I want to be very clear that these are not liberals. Not at all. These are people with whom we can join heart and hand in our common respect for the word of God. But you know, my friends, it's not just saying that you love the scripture. 
and that this church is based on the Bible and the Bible alone, it's not just saying that that makes it so. And so we bring this question then to the test of Scripture. And I would ask you to take your Bible. Again, my goal, my friends, is that you would see these things uh, with your own eyes in your own Bible. I, I am distressed by how easily we fall sometimes for some of these teachings in these, in these other churches. And we do it too quickly and too easily. And I think we need to be a little bit more discerning on what does the Scripture actually say. This is just a question, my friends, that the Bible will resolve for us. I'm not going to stand here and say, well, the Catechism teaches it. You all better believe it now. You need to see it with your own eyes in the Word of God. So our brother has made this claim on the, on the other side here that uh, I want to tell you there's absolutely no biblical support for that. None. You cannot find the church in the Old Testament. So that is a question then that we want to put to the Scriptures. And I ask you in the first place to turn to the book of Acts chapter 7. This is when Stephen was speaking and defending himself before the Sanhedrin. And you know that in that speech, that long speech that Stephen gives in chapter 7, he gives a history of Israel. And in verse 37, Stephen is going on. He says, this is the Moses who said to the sons of Israel, God will raise up for you a prophet like me from your brethren. And then verse 38, this is the one who was in the congregation in the wilderness together with the angel who was speaking to him on Mount Sinai. Now I'll stop there. Back up and I want you to see that word congregation. You see that word congregation. That is the word in the Greek language that is our word for church. So it could very easily, in many translations, translate it this way. This is the one who was in the church in the wilderness. Now I submit to you, my friends, is our brother correct when he says that the church cannot be found in the Old Testament? I just leave that question with you and ask you to understand. Here we have Stephen explicitly saying that the people of Israel in the wilderness are a church. Now, of course, we know that church means something differently. It, it, it evolved into something differently in Acts. God began to bring in the Gentiles. He poured out his spirit in great measure upon them. We're not saying they're exactly the same. But I ask you, is it correct to understand the people of Israel as church? One more verse that I want to give you here is Hebrews 2 and verse 12. Hebrews chapter 2 and verse 12. Now here we have the author of Hebrews quoting an Old Testament text. In Hebrews 2 and verse 12, and our translation helpfully puts that in all capital letters, so we can see the quote. That's, by the way, from Psalm 22 and verse 22. But at any rate, our author says, saying, I will proclaim your name to my brethren. In the midst of the congregation, I will sing your praise. Here we have again, in the midst of the congregation, or church, that's the word, well, you might even know the Greek word is ecclesia, ecclesia, right? You can, and that's what it is right there. In the midst of the church, I will sing your praise. Now, he's quoting Psalm 22, verse 22, which is clearly talking about the people of Israel praising God. And in the midst of the church, in the midst of the congregation there, is a clear reference to the people of Israel. 
So you have another explicit reference in the New Testament scriptures where the authors use the word church to refer to the nation of Israel. Now, if you'll turn with me to 1 Peter. So after the book of Hebrews, then James, then we have 1 Peter in chapter 2. Now here, we're not going to be looking so much for the explicit word church, but I want you to hear these descriptions that the apostle gives of the people of God. So he's talking here about about Christians. He's talking about the church. And in verse 9. So read with me in 1 Peter 2 and verse 9. But you are a chosen race. Now let's just stop there. What does that mean? So he's saying you, in other words, you Christians who believe in Jesus are a chosen race. Now you'll notice that in our Bibles too, that is put in all capital letters. Why? Because chosen race was a term that was used to describe Israel. And now, Peter is saying, you, Christians, no different than if I stood here today and said to you, you all are a chosen race. If you're a believer in Christ today, you are a chosen race. A royal priesthood. And again, what do you hear when you hear that? What is a royal priesthood? Well, the priesthood was what Israel had, right? Israel had priests appointed by God. But now God is saying to all Christians, you are a royal priesthood, a holy nation. Well, what was the only nation in the Old Testament that was holy? There was only one nation that was set apart by God, that were especially his chosen covenant people. A holy nation. A people for God's own possession. Who's that referring to? You see, in each one of these cases, you have words that were applied to the nation of Israel in the Old Testament as the people of God, and now the Apostle Peter is doing precisely what we are told by the dispensationalist you must never do. And he's taking each one of those terms and he's applying them to the New Testament people of God. <clears throat> now, what, well, what is Acts chapter 2 then? I mean, we, we, we preached on that some time ago, right? And we even said that in Acts chapter 2 that was, there was something new there, Right? No question that something new took place in Acts chapter 2. Was it completely new? Or was it simply the, the, the growth of this tree? No different than what I could say. When, you know, when I look out there and I see, well, probably when I look out the front here and see these huge trees standing next to Lover's Lane, well, it once was an acorn, right? And so in that sense, that tree is new. Not completely new, right? It, it grew and it developed into what it is today. And in the same way, through each of the dispensations of biblical history, God's plan grows and develops. His, his, his people change, right? It starts with Abraham. It goes to Moses. He gives them many laws and all these different changes. But still, it's the one people of God developing and growing. In Acts chapter 2, there's this new thing that happens. The Gentiles are brought in. At least it, it begins that the Gentiles, not until Acts chapter 10 does it actually take place. But in Acts chapter 2, we have this baptism of the Spirit. The Spirit was poured out as he never was before. Now, was there a baptism of the Spirit in the Old Testament? Yes, there was. But nothing like to the extent of what happened in Acts chapter 2. So, all the difference then is, was it completely new? Or was this something new in the sense of 
a new development in the one people of God. So again, I don't want to sound like nothing new happened in Acts chapter 2. We even call it a new covenant, right? But not a completely new covenant. Well, then let me turn to my text, to Amos. Oh, boy. Well, we're gonna, let's uh, look at Amos. And let's just go straight to Amos chapter 9. Amos chapter 9. So here we have the prophet Amos preaching, preaching, again, a very stern message of repentance to the northern tribes. Again, we talked about that with James this morning, right? James and Amos, two, two men with the same basic outlook on life. Very stern message to the children of Israel. But we have at the end of chapter 9, by the way, at the beginning of chapter 9, you see all the judgments that God is going to bring on his people for their unfaithfulness. But then we're happy to read at the end of chapter 9 and read with me in verse 11, Amos 9 and verse 11. In that day I will raise up the fallen booth of David and wall up its breaches. I will also raise up its ruins and rebuild it as in the days of old. In Amos 9, we see these verbs, raise up, wall up, raise up, and rebuild. God is going to do this for the booth of David. That is the house, okay? And a booth would have been a very flimsy house. But for this house, which was shaking and wavering, had gone off in, it was going to go off into exile. And yet now God brings this promise that for the booth of David, for the kingdom of David and Israel, God is going to come. And he's going to lay aside his judgments. And he's going to raise up, wall up, raise up and rebuild. A beautiful promise to a people, by the way, that were living in great prosperity. They must have scoffed at Amos. Amos, why are you saying these things? This kingdom's never been stronger. We're living in, this is living in the times of, of Jeroboam II. Great prosperity, great wealth, great strength. There was no danger. And yet Amos is saying, you're going to be destroyed. You're going to be taken off into exile. But now we have this precious promise. You can imagine the people of Israel reading this in exile, that God is going to raise up the booth of David. He's going to give them back their land. Verse 12. He's going to even call the other nations. And Israel is going to possess their land. There's going to be a time in verse 13 of great prosperity. The plowman will overtake the reaper. In other words, the person that's doing the harvesting, it's going to take him so long to harvest the crops. There's so much that he won't even finish before the guy who plants the seed is already coming out into the field and start planting. Same thing with the treader of grapes. He's still working on treading out the grapes that he's harvested. Here comes the guy already to plant new vines. Again, the mountains will drip sweet wine. The hills will be dissolved. In other words, there will be like rivers of wine running down the hills for the people of God. In verse 14, I will restore the captivity of my people Israel, and they will rebuild the ruined cities and live in them. Now here we have a promise made, a wonderful promise made by the prophet of Amos. To whom? For whom? Again, the dispensationalist would teach us to believe that this is for the booth of David. This is not for Christians. This is not for the church. Yes, we stand by and we wait for God to make good his promise to Israel, but it's not for us. 
And so when we stand here today and we say, well, how has this prophecy been fulfilled to Israel? The ten tribes were never heard from again. They went off into exile and they never returned. They're done. They were canceled. When did this great time of prosperity for Israel happen again? We know that even when the two tribes returned, that they lived in poverty. That they didn't live in times of great prosperity. We know that from the prophets Haggai, uh, Malachi, and Zechariah. Well, the dispensationalists then tell us, well, then this is a prophecy of the millennium. Because you're right, this has never happened to Israel, but we know that none of God's promises fail. So there will be that 1,000-year reign at the end of history. And that's when God is going to fulfill this promise in Amos 9 to his people Israel. And when the millennium comes, God will make good on his promise to the nation of Israel. Yeah, and we, 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 we look at that and think, well, that just seems a little convenient almost, not terribly persuasive. My friends, how do the authors of the New Testament understand this, this, uh, this prophecy of Amos chapter 9? And again, if I can ask you please once more to turn to Acts chapter 15. Now, we're not up to this yet in our series in Acts, but we hope to come here shortly. But in Acts chapter 15... We have this council at Jerusalem, this great question of does a person have to, does a Gentile have to become a Jew if he's going to be saved? You can see that in verse 1 of chapter 15, some main men came down from Judea and began teaching the brethren, unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. Right? That was the great point of the Judaizers in the church. So now the apostles all come together at Jerusalem. Paul is there, Barnabas is there. And they're now going to hash this out. We've got to get clear on this position. Now, we partly mentioned this also this morning, that it was James whom God uh, especially uh, gave light on this issue. And if you go to verse 13, Acts 15 and verse 13, after they had stopped speaking, so Paul and Barnabas and Peter had spoken, but now James answered saying, Brethren, listen to me. Keep reading with me, verse 14. Simeon, that is Peter, has related how God first concerned himself about taking from among the Gentiles a people for his name. With this, the words of the prophets agree, just as it is written. And now listen, I wonder if any of this sounds familiar to you. After these things I will return, and I will rebuild the tabernacle, or the booth, of David, which has fallen, and I will rebuild its ruins, and I will restore it, so that the rest of mankind may seek the Lord, and all the Gentiles who are called by my name, says the Lord, who makes these things known from long ago. And so, my friends, you see that James is now taking that prophecy of Daniel, I'm sorry, of Amos, and he's saying, today, that prophecy is being fulfilled. That what Amos prophesied about what God was going to do for the booth of David, now that is taking place before us. And the church of God that we see before us, Jew and Gentile, baptized with the Spirit into the body of Christ, this is a fulfillment of what Amos prophesied in Amos chapter 9. Now, my friends, again, I, that gets serious then, isn't it? If you're going to assert, as many of these people do, as even our, our brother did in that quote I gave you on the front, 
that the Old Testament never speaks about the church. And that the Old Testament prophecies are not about the church. And yet you have the Apostle James striving to persuade the Council of Jerusalem, and of course us as well who read Scripture, that this prophecy does apply to the church. And yet if you're going to teach people that this prophecy in Amos 9 has nothing to do with the church, then you're working at cross-purposes with James. And that's a serious thing. So again, I don't want to be unduly severe tonight. But that is a serious thing when James... And remember how, long, how hard a struggle James had to come to this, this understanding that the Gentiles were to be included. But now God had revealed to James that those prophecies in the Old Testament were about his people, Jew and Gentile, in one body in the New Testament, not relating to some millennium in the future, but as being fulfilled right now before your eyes in the book of Acts. Then it's a serious thing to say that those prophecies in Amos and all the other prophets as well only apply to Israel. Well, I want to stop. I want to stop. I still have an application to make, my friends. I want to make this application. Please bear with me a little yet. Because I don't believe this is just a pointless theological question. I spent a lot of time trying to show you that the church of God began in the Old Testament with the people of God growing and, and developing into the people that it is today. And that all along the way, God had one program, one plan from the, from the very beginning of time to the end of time. And it's not just a pointless theological question that happens to be something that pastors like to argue about. This is something, my friends, that has great comfort. And I put that picture of the Mackinac Bridge because I think it illustrates so clearly what I'm trying to say. Is that when we are crossing that bridge, my friends, we can look back and we can see the one pillar. And we can see that our safety and our security on that bridge is anchored in that pillar. It's depending on that pillar. And when you look at that pillar, you look at its height, its size, the thickness of those cables, you take confidence, don't you? as you drive along, that that bridge, even if it sways a little bit, right, that it's fixed firmly in the past. And you can look forward. And here my, my analogy breaks down a little bit because that second pillar isn't the very end, right? The bridge continues on. But still, that second pillar, you can look forward. And you can see where you're going. You can see where you're aiming for. And in both those pillars now, my friends, the people of God take so much comfort. That my salvation is anchored in God's eternal decree in the past. Like that, like that pillar on the bridge. And that my salvation is also God's purpose to bring me one day to his land, to his city. And to bring me into his kingdom. And now, I live in a time between both of those pillars. And I can find comfort in looking back. And I find comfort in looking forward. And so when the Lord's table is spread before us in the coming week, my friends, the Lord's table teaches us to do exactly that. This do in remembrance of me. Look back and see that pillar. This do in remembrance of me. And in the second place, Jesus said, I will not celebrate this again until I come in my kingdom. Right? Teaching us to look forward to that time that we reach that second pillar. The purpose of God for the, God's people is to bring them home to his own city, to bring them home into his own kingdom, 
a place of joy and peace and safety. We'll be there with the dispensationalist. Let me say that tonight. But still, what a glorious thing that is for the people of God to look back all the way even beyond the beginning of time, to look at eternity past and to see our salvation, not the salvation just of Israel, but the salvation, our salvation, the salvation of Gentile people planned and decreed in eternity past. And to see that program, that plan being worked out every step of the way, all the way into the glorious future that God has promised his people. And every now and again, God says, now stop. Lay aside your business. Lay aside your work. Here's a table. And this table is like a little oasis between those two pillars. And here I want you to stop. I want you to look at broken bread. I want you to look at poured out wine. And to know that this is your salvation in the broken body and in the shed blood of Christ. Yes, you'll leave church. You'll take up your work again. And we'll continue our life. But there's those times, my friends, when God calls us, calls us to pause, to stop. This do in remembrance of me. To see your salvation anchored in both pillars and in that long program of God, which is fast coming to a conclusion. And in that regard, my friends, the Lord's Supper too teaches us to both look backwards and to look forwards. And so I hope, my friends, that even though this this is a somewhat of a different kind of sermon, I understand that, that yet even this has a, a deep practical value for the people of God to see the program, the plan, the decree of God marching forward, no delays, not off schedule, but marching forward to its perfect completion. And that I am and always will be a living member, a living participant in that program and that plan. May God grant it for each one of us for time and for eternity. Amen. Let's pray. Lord, we come before you at the close of this service. Lord, bless these truths to our hearts. We pray, Lord, that you would guide us, the dispensationalist, and all Christians to a better understanding of your truth. We don't have a corner on the truth either, Lord. We know that. But we pray that you would give us humble hearts to sit at your word, to hear from it, and to go wherever it may lead us. Bless us, Lord, and keep us, and cause your face to shine upon us, and hear us as we ask all these things in the strong name of Jesus. Amen. Let's turn in our red hymnal now to number 417. Four hundred and seventeen. Let's sing uh, verses one and one and three. Let's sing verse one, three, and five. Verse one, three, and five of number four hundred and seventeen in the red hymnal.
receive the blessing of the Lord and go in peace. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face shine on you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. Amen. Thank you.